ahead and finish up Galatians briefly here. Galatians 6, 11 through 18. So we conclude Galatians. It's almost been uh, a one-note a one note song here. Paul is saying, Christ is enough, get over it. And he ends it, he ends it pretty aggressively. He's taking great pains to address this issue. He's heard it from the Galatian church. They were taking parts of the law and adding them to Christ. Acting as if Christ's payment on the cross wasn't enough to, to make you right before God. Or as if the Holy Spirit wasn't enough to transform you or change you. He makes this point over and over again that you can't be justified by the law, only through Christ. And through the whole letter, he's addressed the lack of gospel logic in their church. He says, you can't say that I believe in Christ alone, but I feel like my ritual baptism, my denominational alignment, my use of the Lord's Supper, or my adherence to a moral code, these things aid in my salvation. You can't say that. But here at the end, he goes ahead and he points straight at the motives of the perpetrators of this false message. And he recenters their identity on the cross. His point is simple the flesh can appear right, but the cross makes you new. Let's look at Galatians 6 11 through 18. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So he starts out here, and starts out odd. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So we need to understand that this was a letter that he would have dictated to a scribe. And then like in most of his letters, he takes up the pen himself at the end and he writes a signature with a few little words. But here he goes for extra emphasis. Now, it seems weird to us, but you have to understand that this letter would have been heard far more than it would have been read would have been read out loud. So if something's highlighted or in bold, unless it's pointed out that, hey, this is in bold letters, you wouldn't have known. You wouldn't have known that he wanted to emphasize anything. So one, paraf- uh, one footnote that I found was, according to centuries-old Eastern usage, this could easily mean, note how heavily I have pressed upon the pen in writing this. So he's, say- he's telling the listeners that, hey, this is highlighted, underlined, in bold. So it's even more overt than that. It's like him saying, he, he wrote something in bold and he underlined it. And then he said, hey, did you notice that bold thing that I underlined? 
He really wants you to get this last point. And he says, I want you to get this last point, and then I don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm done with this. You should be past this. You need to get over this. Verse 12 and 13. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, so simply that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And those who are don't even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So this false doctrine that you needed to keep up with their law and traditions came about for a reason. There was a reason that this had come up in the church. And it wasn't as a result of diligent study. It wasn't that they said, hey, we've decided that this makes us right before God, and we want to go ahead and make sure that we do this, we keep this in here. Um, there were a couple of motivations here. First, to impress the Jewish neighbors that they were among, and then to make sure that they didn't face the same level of persecution experienced by a lot of the Christians at the hands of the Jews. They wanted to appear good and accept, acceptable to the lost Jews among them, but then the people that they were trying to oppress, Paul points out, they weren't even keeping the law themselves. Just what seemed important to them, specifically something that could be physically verified, like circumcision. I have felt really, really bad in this series for people that come through as visitors. Because in what context do you hear the word circumcision about 50 times in about 30 minutes? Like you use that word twice in your life, you show up at a church... And they're talking about this really uncomfortable topic for 30, 40, 50 minutes. I felt really bad for some people. So let me say, this wasn't as weird to them. They knew what it meant. This was an identifier. God said, okay, all of the men from Abraham on, you're going to be circumcised so that you know you're set apart. This is, this is unusual. This is different. They were bringing it into their gospel. They were saying, well, yeah, Jesus, maybe Jesus is good, but we need to go ahead and bring all this other stuff in as well, because now, now we keep all of this, and we'll, we'll take Jesus as well. They understood exactly what he was talking about. They were talking about tradition. They were talking about law, where Jesus had already pointed out, the law is to show you that you can't keep the law. So I wanted to say that because I feel really bad whenever we have a visitor come through and then one of our guest preachers come through and stands up here and uses the word circumcision about 50 times in 30 minutes. It just must be horribly uncomfortable for that visitor. So their motivations were to impress and avoid persecution. So they were just keeping up appearances. So this indicates they were doing what we are still very guilty of doing. That is... Religious math. So do I check all the right boxes to consider myself actually saved? So if I do all the right things and be, and be seen doing all the right things so that I am approved by all the right people, then I'm probably okay. You know, I hang out with so-and-so and so-and-so and I do the things. I attend the right churches and so-and-so sees me and they do it. I'm probably good. So they've got this motive here. This indicates a very shallow understanding of the work and the purpose of the cross. If we're doing this kind of math, and obviously here, this, this shows a lack of understanding of the work of the cross. At this point, the cross did not benefit them at all. 
If you're going to stack all those numbers and all that behind the cross, then suddenly the cross is no good for you. The cross doesn't care about a visibly improved product. The cross's purpose is to make new. The newness of the cross is the point here at the, at the end of this letter. The cross takes what is dead and makes it alive. You can't do that. You can't do that. It must be done for you. There's not a function you can carry out. There's not a water that's holy enough. There's not a communion that's good enough. There's not a morality that's high enough to make you new. Only the cross does that for you. Only Christ does that. That's why then in verse 14, boasting is mentioned there. But may it never be said that, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boast means to glory in, to make much of, or to be consumed with, or be mastered by something. It's deep. It comes from your center, from your soul. Bragging is an odd concept if you break it down. It's utterly subjective, it, and it makes it seem stranger because it depends on your perspective whether something is brag-worthy. I've kind of wondered about what illustration to use here. You could use anything. If I've got the largest marble collection in the world, and I'm like, hey, check out this marble collection. This is cool. You don't know. I mean, this is, this is the best. This is the neatest marble collection. I am really proud of this marble collection. Who cares? Nobody has marble collections, or very few people do, and if they do, they don't brag about it because nobody else cares. That comparison is is lost there. Like, so yeah, if we all had a marble collection and some of them were bigger than others and some of them were nicer, then yeah, maybe we get it. But it's subjective. You love marbles. That's great for you. Nobody else cares. There's no point in bragging. But in an objective sense, I've decided that bragging has the most to do with position and security. So a human likes to know where they stand, especially in relation to another person, as in whether or not I have a better position or security than another person. If you take away that other person, that other person, then the whole concept of pride vanishes. If I am the best at something, I've got this reason because I'm better than somebody else. I've got this reason to be proud. Everybody else pulls out up to that same level, kind of diminishes my pride. You take the other person away altogether, it's just me being good at something by myself. It totally loses its context. There's no reason for pride. Pride kind of disappears whenever you take the other people away. So the whole concept then vanishes. Paul says, I'm only going to brag about the cross. Paul's only bragging point is the cross of Christ. Even though, and we kind of over the millennia, we've, we've lost track of this. It's shameful to the world. So the cross didn't have the symbolism that we give it now in jewelry and decor. It would have been like taking a little golden noose and hanging it around your neck or hanging it on the wall or a guillotine or an electric chair as decoration. It would have seemed macabre and spooky and dark, the cross. And even worse, we, we really don't have a concept. 
they would, the Romans would line the roads into their cities with crosses so that you walked into town, you knew who your masters were. And I mean, it, it would have been disgusting and gross and creepy and dark. And Paul says, that's my thing. That's what I'm going to brag in. You guys can take your pretty religion and you can take all of your, all of your um, rituals and everything and you can brag in that. But I've got this one dark, gross, demeaning thing and that is my thing exclusively it was a sure symbol of a terrible death paul says i claim that because that death is life to me it put to death this dark hard world of sin that we exist in and it put me to death as far as this world is concerned so that new life could exist the old has died so that the new can come. The testimony of Christianity is dying to the temporal and living to the eternal. We die to self, our ambitions, our desires, and the sin that condemns me. And then we live to the glory of God. This is the work of the cross. The only thing that produces any lasting joy or satisfaction. Why is that? Because as a new creation... That's where he goes next. New creation, we have new ambitions, desires, and we then hate the condemning sin. The cross then produces my position before God. The cross produces my confidence and my position and my security. And it's all on account of Christ and not me. Galatians 2.20, earlier in the letter, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Religious ritual and tradition do not make me new. Nothing physical can produce new life in me. If someone tells you that this water, this bread, this wine, this phrase, any action that your flesh carries out can provide you with any moral position towards God, that, or, or if that can aid in your salvation in any way, that should be a major red flag to you. The Bible is clear that our works, no matter how religious, don't get us anywhere. A clear understanding of God tells us that even our best behavior is tainted with sin. You must be made new. The whole goal is that Christ be glorified in his creation so that this must be his work from beginning to end. You don't get to do something that helps you. He does it. Look at verse 15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. Either way, it's not counting towards you. You're not building this religious math. It's only a new creation, something you can't do. This is a new creation, not a self-improved one. This is not better gas. This is a new car. It's not trying to stick with a morality that is, you know, a socially beneficial behavior modification. I'm being good, and if you're good and we're all good, it's good for everybody. It's really convenient, and that's the way the world must evolve and progress. Is That's our sense of morality. 
But this is being transformed into something else entirely, something whose values have changed to the core. What I used to love, I don't love anymore. And what I used to not think much of now has become big to me. It's not about convenience at all. Convenience at all. It's about nature. It's not the nature of a dog to fly and dig for worms. It's not the nature of a, of a bird to dig for bones and bark all night long and get yelled at. It's nature, different nature, something completely different. And that answers then the question, then what is it that makes a Christian good? It's pretty well accepted that if you call yourself a Christian, then you need to have a semblance of good. Why? Well, the biblical answer is that the work of Christ is in me. There's an actual real work of Christ going on in me. He gets the credit. It's the work of the cross, the dying to self, the dying to the world, and the living to Christ. What we are being shown is that a morality that is sincere and intrinsic only comes from outside of us. Something truly moral comes from something, someone truly moral, from Christ. It is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, not a disciplined routine. Transformation is what needs to be accomplished, not just better moral practices, not a Christianity-induced self-improvement. That's not good enough. That doesn't get it done. That doesn't cut it. Because what the Christian knows, someone who has become a Christian, the Christian has come to the knowledge that something is wrong with me, that I am prone to sin and wickedness, and I can't get over it. It needs to be overcome, and I can't do it. My obstacle is so overwhelming, so big, that to overcome it, I might as well not exist as me. In my nature, who I am, I cannot exist if I am to overcome my sin nature, which is what, he is, what is, Paul is saying here. I have to become something else. My nature has to change. Tell me to become, okay, you need to be good enough for God. It's like telling water to become sand. It's, it's molecularly not there. I have to exist in a different nature. I have to become something else. Our entire nature must be put to death and reborn. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the, old, the, behold, the new has come. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. It says, A new creation is what you must become. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. So maybe as we've gone through Galatians, it's made you a little bit uneasy thinking, okay, so do we just throw away all of our standards just to make sure that we're not being like the foolish Galatians? There's got to be a line here somewhere. You're saying you can't be good enough for God. It's all Jesus. So then what's the point? Is there any standard for us? Paul addresses that here. He does actually set a standard for us. 
We like having a rule book on these issues. We can check our box. We know, okay, I'm probably good. Um, you know, let me make sure I'm good. Let me go to church, make sure I don't do these certain sins. Then I'll go on with more important stuff in my life. Just make sure I'm good. We like that checklist. And if I can live up to the checklist, I can feel pretty good about myself. Paul sets a standard here for us, a rule. His rule is die and start over. A new creation, that's the rule, that's the standard. Be made again. Become something else entirely, a new creation. That's why the phrase born-again Christian is meaningful. It gets thrown around now, and I think it's kind of used now to identify, you know, this is a, this is a really um, fanatical Christian. But born-again is such an important concept to the Christian is because it means that I died and I ceased to exist and now I exist in Christ in another nature. That's why whenever you hear that phrase born again, it needs to mean something to you. Dying to self and living in the cross is the only way to have peace. Notice there he says, uh, those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. So the word rule there is the word canon in Greek, measuring rod or, or standard or carpenter's rule by which you live. This is your standard. You want to live up to it? You just have to be a new creation, have a new nature in Christ Jesus. And that can only be accomplished through Jesus in the cross. That is the standard by which you live. You can nitpick about little things and say, well, I, I think that a Christian should look like this or should act like this or should be this. But none of it matters unless you have been made new by Christ. And then we still don't worry about nitpicking the little things because there is a real Holy Spirit that changes you and then produces a new nature in you. You can ask someone who's got quite a testimony and says, I got saved and I know the difference. I've got that new life. I know what it was like before, and I know what it's like now. And it is a different life. I want different things. Different things are being produced in me. Things that would have made no sense, that would have seemed silly and religious, that I would even entertain these things, or go to church, or worship God, or read this archaic book. Suddenly there is a life there that wasn't there before. And then he says... New creation is what gives you peace. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That upon the Israel of God is a little extra dig at the Judaizers because Christ and the cross is now a bigger deal to the Hebrews than Abraham and ritual circumcision. And that just blew their mind. That was, that was the reason they crucified Jesus. That was the reason the Jews were persecuting the Christians because we've got Christ and he makes nothing of everything else. Verse 17 is interesting to me. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Okay, so we talked a little bit about circumcision. Paul's ritual, physical proof of religion, such as his infant circumcision, or diet, or holy days, or ritual cleanness, or like your baptism, your Lord's Supper, your church membership, 
or anything you do in this body does nothing and can do nothing to sanctify you or actually make you righteous. None of this could change him. None of this could make him new. It's putting lipstick on a pig. But his scars from persecution tell a completely different story. So the scars themselves do nothing. I, I just I find it interesting that he mentions physical scarring in the context of talking about physical circumcision. He says, I've got scars. I've got something that you can physically verify about me that shows my new nature. They indicate, they mirror and signify an internal, eternal reality like baptism does, like the Lord's Supper does. They didn't do anything. The scars that he suffered for persecution, they didn't do anything spiritually for him, but they showed his new nature. Because look, his willingness to endure the persecution that he once perpetrated on people, think about that. That shows that he is someone else. The old Saul has died, and now he is Paul. He's new now. Remade by the work of the cross to produce righteousness and peace. I think about his scars of persecution versus the physical scarring of circumcision. It's like muscle implants. You've seen those guys that do those muscle implants and they look like balloon animals, you know, versus a gained physique. That's, that's, that's the difference here versus someone who's actually done the work and someone who's just got the look. That's the difference here in the scars. The word for scars is stigmata, the spots or marks. The word stigmata was used for the branding of slaves. Paul considered himself branded, and it was evidence of his new nature. There should be proof in a Christian's life of a new nature. There should be notable things that are different about you because you find your identity in Christ. So then, is the law bad? If Christ leaps over it in a single bound, no, the law of God is incredible. Uh, the psalmist talks about laying awake at night, thinking about the law of God and, and rolling over in his mind because the law shows us God. But its purpose was never for us to follow it in order to be good enough for God. I can say that because Jesus makes it clear in his Sermon on the Mount that the law of God is to show us how out of reach God and his righteousness is. Shows us that contrast. This is God, what he is, what he expects, what he requires, and this is us and we cannot attain it without Christ. So if you've come to the place where you've identified that there is something wrong, and you seem to be unable to do anything to fix it, which I pray that everyone in this room has or will come to that point, then you need to come to Christ. You need to die to self and live to Christ. There's no point in being a member, taking communion, being baptized, until you have been made new by the work of Christ. This is to turn away from your sin, that word we call repent, and by faith accept Christ as your payment for sin. Accept that Christ 
has bridged the gap for you. I would not be obeying my command from scripture if I did not urge you to come to Christ today if you have not. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for this testimony. We thank you. We thank you for the issue that you gave the Galatian church so that we could look through it and identify ourselves and identify you, identify the work that you are doing in us and that we can address the issues and the falsehoods that arise in our own hearts, in our own efforts to acquire our own righteousness apart from Christ. Lord, we thank you for the work of the cross. I, I ask that you would, you would bury this deep in us and that it would grow and produce a new nature. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.